Turning back this morning to the Word of God as we find it in 1 Corinthians and the chapter 13, and we're coming to the final section today. And I know we have been sort of blow by blow, clause by clause, phrase by phrase for a while, Uh, but today we're looking at the sweep from verse 8 right through to the end of the chapter, and hopefully we'll be tying in together uh, where we have been over the past number of weeks. Verse 8 through to 13 today. But with the Bible open, let's bow together in prayer, please. Our gracious Father, loving Lord, again we thank Thee that we're fine with the Word of God before us. We would want no other book from which to preach, because that is the one that Thou wast revealed Thyself through. That is the one that Thou wast given unto men. As little chorus in Sunday school will tell us, it's the only book that God has given. As I read, God speaks to me. I see Christ and Calvary the wonderful Word of God. And so we pray that this Word today, and we'll be reading how it is a mirror, uh, we pray that as we look into it, we will see a proper reflection of ourselves, and we will see also the proper reflection of Christ, to whom and to whose image we do and should as thy children aspire. For those who were not the children of God today, through faith in Christ, by repentance, we pray that I will bring them through by thy matchless love and mercy, and may they be the children of God today. Come and answer our prayer. Touch those who have been bereaved, who now sorrow, those who have plenty of concern because of relatives that have been in hospital and are there even as we assemble here. We pray that thy touch will be upon them and that they will know thy presence and power even at this time and thy pardon where that pardon is also required. Answer prayer. Deal with our hearts. Dwell with us now, tabernacle amongst us, and reveal Christ unto our minds, we pray. In Jesus' name and for God's eternal glory, we ask these things. Amen. I'm quite sure that you have spotted a slogan on posters or on t-shirts or in the election literature of some jump-on-the-bandwagon political parties, each of which is proclaiming love is love. It's the basic assertion that the LGBT community is just like everybody else. You love who you love. Nobody can interfere in that. Nobody can devalue that. And really, who cares? Although, and very predictably, even if all of society were to fall into line with this sentiment, and even if everyone was not merely to assent to it, because that's not what they're looking for, but rather vigorously promoted. This would fall far short of what many homosexuals actually want. As one supporter of the slogan writing in a commentary in The Guardian said, love is love, yes, but it will never be enough. Of course not. Nothing will ever be enough. And we have certainly witnessed that 
over the past number of decades in particular, so much so that today the big target, that has always been the big target, the church is coming under increasing pressure from society, and in many parts of it, it is sadly capitulating and caving in to accept the demands of a lifestyle and to promote that lifestyle that the Bible maintains on changing opposition to. In the news this week from our friends at the Christian Institute was this headline, Church of England leaders celebrate same-sex sexual relationships. Two of the most senior figures in the Church of England, the Archbishop of York, Stephen Cottrell, and the Bishop of London, Sarah Mullally, they have revealed that they believe sexual intimacy within same-sex relationships should be celebrated. In several media statements, they both said, stable, faithful relationships between two men or two women could be blessed. And of course, that's rejecting historic Christian teaching on sexual ethics. I was encouraged to read that a group, a worldwide group of Orthodox Anglican bishops has denounced these Church of England plans to bless same-sex relationships, and they've said it's a violation of the clear teaching of the Bible. This global South Fellowship of Anglican Churches, the chairman of that body, also the Archbishop of South Sudan, the Most Reverend Dr. Justin Badim, he branded the document a farcical compromise, devoid of any supporting theological argument. And he said, what the English bishops are recommending constitutes unfaithfulness to the God who has spoken through his written word. They are rewriting God's law for his creation, laws that are reaffirmed by Christ in the gospel accounts. I was also encouraged to read, back in October of 2022, that a congregation that left the Church of Scotland more than 10 years ago because of that denomination's approval of a minister in a same-sex relationship, that congregation that seceded continues to thrive. Reverend Peter Dixon and the congregation at High Hilton Church were the first to leave the Kirk of Scotland after it defended appointing the openly homosexual minister, Reverend Scott Rennie, to another church in the same city that they're in, in Aberdeen. And they, when they broke out of the Church of Scotland, they formed Trinity Church Aberdeen. The present minister of Trinity, David Gibson, said, one of the abiding lessons of church history is that when the church tries to reach the world, by being as progressive as the world, by imitating the world, then it is not long before the church ends up as broken as the world. Two years ago, this church bought a large abandoned church building in the center of Aberdeen in order to serve God in that city. 
Now, these men certainly do not subscribe to the much-repeated slogan, love is love, and nor do we. For this brand of love that they're promoting is not love at all, but inordinate lust. The Bible makes that crystal clear. Homosexual activity is described in Romans chapter 1, the verse 26, as vile affections. And the word vile affections, it means shameful and disgraceful. And there's no way of navigating around that. You cannot neutralize God's truth. By way of contrast, over the course of the last months, we've looked at Paul's tremendous description of true love as he has written it in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. The agape type of love, the highest form of love. According to Bible commentator and teacher Alan Redpath, we get our English word agony from agape. It means the actual absorption of our being in one great passion. And so this love that Paul is writing about, 1 Corinthians 13, and we have seen how all of its features back up this thought. It can be described as a sacrificial, a giving, an absorbing kind of love. The word has very little to do with emotion, really. It has much to do with self-denial for the sake of others. And we've been reminding ourselves here that Paul is not addressing a marriage enrichment seminar. In writing what he does, he's speaking to the church. His words here don't focus merely on love within a marriage, but on that love within the body of Jesus Christ. And it does impact all of what he writes upon our everyday relationships. And over the course of the studies, we've seen that love recognizes that our greatest sense of fulfillment, it's going to be found rather strangely, not by getting from others, but by giving to others. Love gives people time to grow. Love treats other people with kindness and courtesy. Love desires the best for people. It realizes that it's best to embrace the Lord and His direction for life and for eternity. Love doesn't keep score, a little black book in which all of the offenses of everybody else are jotted down. Love gives other people the benefit of the doubt. Love highlights the best in others rather than spotlighting their weaknesses. Love cherishes the truth and hates everything that is evil. Love never gives up. We have seen that just as love covers a multitude of sins, so the absence of love will uncover a multitude of sins. Spurgeon said, I would, my brothers and sisters, that we could all imitate the pearl oyster. A hurtful particle intrudes itself into its shell. This vexes and grieves it. It cannot eject the evil. What does it do but cover it with a precious substance extracted out of its own life, by which it turns the intruder into a pearl? Oh, that we could do so with the provocations we receive from our fellow Christians, so that pearls of patience, gentleness, long-suffering, and forgiveness may be bred within us 
by that which has harmed us. And that's an excellent illustration. Now, the truth of the matter is we need these reminders and prompts that Paul is giving us here right down through the chapter because it's so easy for us to become distracted in the world all around us, distracted by discussions of theology that we forget. We've been called to follow Jesus Christ in terms of practical daily living. It's so easy to become distracted by the burdens and the trials of life that we forget that we belong to a God who loves us and who will, He has promised, He will see us through the fiercest of storms. It's easy to be so distracted by what happens to us that we forget those experiences have a design in them and they're designed to draw us to God rather than those experiences become the source of despair and of departure. It's so easy to become distracted by the business of doing things and growing the church and seeing things pushed out in a program that we forget that the church is about people, not programs. And this is what was happening to the Corinthians. They were so wrapped up in, here's my spiritual gift, and have you got one? And mine's better than yours, and look at mine on display. And I want a a prominent position here to show my gifts and my talents within the church that they forgot in the chase after spiritual gifts. They forgot their first responsibility to relate properly to each other in love. There's a reason why Paul put this chapter 13 in the middle of a larger discussion on spiritual gifts. Paul wants those Corinthian Christians to remember giftedness is not the measure of their maturity. The display of love for each other is. Now, as we conclude the chapter, Paul gives his 15-point description of love. We've considered that. And then he drives home all the points that he has already made. We've looked at the primacy of love in the opening verses, 1 to 3, the profile of love, 4 to 7, and now the permanence of love, 8 to 13. Today we're saying that this love is incessant because love is the constant in life and also in eternity. Now, when we begin to read here in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8, and we're reading right up here, charity never faileth. I don't know about you, but I can't read that without raising an eyebrow. Charity never faileth. I'm not sure that that's what I see in everyday dealings in this world, because many of us have not witnessed the breakdown of this very thing. Love, marriages have ended in divorce. Friendships have ruptured. Children have turned and disowned their parents. Siblings have become like strangers just drifting so far, so far apart. Churches have split. What's Paul saying here when he says, charity never faileth? He's not saying clearly that love will always have success. John MacArthur wrote, love is not a magic key that Christians use to unlock every opportunity and guarantee every endeavor. Love is not a spiritual formula that when 
faithfully applied, automatically fulfills our desires and produces human success, love does not always win, at least not in the usual sense. Think of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was love incarnate. And yet that love that he displayed, well, he was ridiculed, he was opposed, he was maligned, he was denied, he was rejected, he was crucified. Paul could be called the apostle of love. He wrote much about it and to know the love of Christ. He talked about its dimensions. He wanted people to come to know that, to be lost in the ocean of Christ's love. And yet Paul didn't leave a trail of perfect success wherever he ministered and preached and tried to start a church. He was persecuted. He was arrested, beaten, imprisoned like his Lord. He was put to death because of what he said and what he did in love. Because love does not overpower the human will, we don't always accomplish our purposes. No matter how loving, how spiritual, how selfless we might be, but I'll tell you this, no godly work can be accomplished without love. Success will not always be a part of love, but love will always be a part of true spiritual success. And if we're going to have traction. In this community, we will never do it without love. And I think the illustration of our Lord Jesus Christ is very instructive. He loved perfectly. And yet people, and many erroneously, have concluded by looking at his cross. They have said, but what was the point in it all? Because it all ended in failure. Of course it didn't. And as we study God's Word, and we bring through all the threads of the Old Testament leading to the cross and the New Testament leading from the cross, we understand that our Lord's love did not fail. It is still changing people, transforming people, redeeming people. The purpose for which He died is being and shall ever be accomplished, and it shall not fail it's because of the love of Christ that you and I are here today. And when you feel that love has failed, here are two things to keep in mind. One is we don't see the whole picture. We never do. And Paul's going to drive that home in the next number of verses here and drive it home in a very challenging way just because our love might be having immediate impact and we're looking around and where's the effect of all of this love that we're pouring out? That does not mean that it is filled. Often the seeds of love bear fruit differently to the way in which we expect it. So we don't see the whole picture. We need to remember that. And not only that, we need to remember that the effect of love is dependent some way on the response of other people. Now, we don't love just to get a response. That would be selfish. But if someone refuses to be loved, pushes it back, then our hands are pretty much tied. For example, if a doctor gives you a prescription, and you cash it in, you bring the medicine home, but then you say, I'm not taking that medicine. Has the medicine failed? No. Has the doctor failed? No. In the same way, love does not fail because someone doesn't respond to it. 
Love is the essence of heaven. It's an investment that doesn't fluctuate, will not lose its value. It is the way that God changes lives, and we must not give up on love simply because we have been hurt or opposed or the world has been turned on us and we felt a bit bashed and a little bit battered when we have shown love and we haven't got a return in type. God manifests himself through love. And so Paul here is addressing the overemphasis that the Corinthian Christians had on the gifts of the Spirit. We are on show here, they were saying. We are on display. Have a look at us. And he was telling them, you need to emphasize love above any of those gifts because those gifts, they're just contemporary temporary containers of God's love. They're going to pass. The word is given here. They will pass. They will cease. They will stop. Love is the work itself. So love is incessant. Not only that, we think of the imperfection. Look what Paul is saying here in verse 8. Charity never faileth. But whether there be prophecies they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. I am one who believes these miraculous gifts ended with the apostles. And I note that since the verb shall cease in verse 8, isn't in the passive but in the middle voice, you could translate it, tongues will stop by themselves. They will run out of steam. They'll reach the end point where they're no longer necessary. For some of us, going to the optician has become over the years more and more of a challenge. I mean, you're sitting down and the illuminated chart is on the wall ahead and you're being asked to read the lines. And you really want to read the smallest possible print right down to the bottom if you possibly can. But as you age, you know that you're going to see less and less of what's being illuminated there. And it's blurry and the optician says, well, what do you see in line five? And you're thinking, oh, that's a question. Where indeed is line five here? And we often have to answer, it's just a blur totally indistinct. Paul is saying here, our life in the world is like that eye chart. We only see in part. Much of it is a blur. We do not see correctly. We don't have full vision of God's holiness, for example. And even though we might recognize our sinfulness, we still don't see fully the horror of our rebellion against God. We don't understand fully what holiness means. So we're not able to grasp what an offense to holiness our sin is to God. Think about a child. They know they're in trouble. They know they've done something wrong. They know they shouldn't have been playing with matches, but you don't understand the danger or the destruction they could have caused. And mommy's flapping about, you could have burned the house down. And they're thinking, catch yourself on. It's not anywhere near that scale. 
they know they're not supposed to go near the street or the main road that's outside, but they don't grasp the devastating consequences their actions could produce if they did. Children may think our parents are bossy and arbitrary and cranky because the children don't see the wider consequences of the things of what they're doing. And so with us, we might feel the pangs of conscience, but we don't understand how deeply our sin affects our relationship with God. And if we saw sin more clearly, we would fight it more forcefully. We also don't see God's love correctly. It comforts me to know what I don't know. God loves me in a much greater way than I realize. God loves you, His child, in a much greater way than you realize. We think, how does God love us? Maybe He loves us like we love each other. We often love sentimentally with people. We love conditionally with people as well. But God's love is eternal. It is constant. It depends upon God's nature rather than our behavior. And when we don't receive an immediate response to our love, sometimes we just think, that person, they're not worth it. Just give up. Don't show it anymore. God does not give up. His love does not see us for what we are, but for what we can become, and through His grace, what we will become. Even if we could fully grasp how perfectly God fulfills the description that we have here in 1 Corinthians 13, and we have tried, put His name in. God is all of these things. We're still only getting a small dimension of the love of God. It's like trying and you're, say, down on the beach, and you're looking across the the sea or the ocean, and you're trying from your little point of view to imagine how big the ocean is, but you can't. That's what trying to understand the love of God is like. We don't see His attributes correctly, all of His other perfections that eternal nature that is His, His sovereign control of the universe, His, the whole concept of His being a trinity. God is one, but manifests Himself in three distinct and separate persons. Our minds cannot fully understand it, no matter how detailed our theological understanding is. And we can read theological treaties on systematic theology, on the nature of God and all of that. We're still like a scientist trying to understand DNA. No matter how learned we are, how many experiments we do, how many microscopes we look through, we are still only seeing the basic truths of DNA. We're left to, well, all we can do is oversimplify something. It's very profound and very complex. God, you see, is greater than our minds can understand. He experiences loads all our categories. He defies all our imaginations, our descriptions of God. You know what it's like? A child says to you, will you draw something for me? Draw a person. And I would guarantee more than half of us will just draw a stick person. 
Not much detail. Maybe an artist would come and they would draw a person. They would paint it and make it splendid and almost living and dancing on the page. But we're more often than not just a wee stick figure. And really our concept of God and understanding of His this side of eternity is not much better than that. It's splendid what we know. But in reality it is so much more splendid than we know. We don't see right and wrong correctly either. We make judgments about behavior based on our perceptions and our desires rather than the standards of God. All we see are the immediate consequences of what is going to happen here. We don't stop to think how our actions are going to impact people down the line. We don't see how the impact will keep rolling into other future events or how we are going to respond to those future situations. We tell our children to obey us. Why? Because I said so. And when they question, that's all they get back many times. Because I said so. What we're really saying to our children is this. You don't see everything I do. Trust me. And in the same way, since we don't see the full impact of our choices and our decisions, we only see the immediate payoff, God calls us to obey Him because He says so. It's not a power play on the behalf of God. It's an expression of love that is anchored in His being able to See the big picture. And that's why we must concede with the psalmist in Psalm 18, as for God, His way is perfect. We don't see clearly. When you look through a dark glass, you can make out some things, but not others. If you're driving in a snowstorm, and thankfully we don't have that many of those, or fog, or driving rain sometimes, you can't even see the car in front of you. And if you're in that fog, it's difficult to see the center line running up the road, much less other cars and other potential hazards in that road. And Paul says that's the way we are in this life. We don't see clearly. We don't see how God is using trials and difficulties to mold us or to enrich somebody else. We don't see how struggle can end in the needed strength that we will have for a later event. We don't see how a warm greeting for somebody today could open up a door for a life-changing opportunity tomorrow. We don't see how our simple prayers can change the circumstances of others. We don't understand, do we? Why God allows the tragedies that strike the world. We don't see the fears and the insecurities that others who seem maybe self-confident and bold and brash walking around us. But we don't see the fears and insecurities that bedevil them. We don't know why two people who live similar lives, one gets sick, the other does not. So when we can't see these things and we're seeing imperfectly, what should our response be? Well, there's a two-pronged part to the response. First, we need to be humble. We need to recognize our own limitations. 
realize, no matter how much I think I know and understand, I am only ever saying a part of the truth. That means I should be softer with others than I am because I don't really understand what's going on in that other person's life. So I need to be humble. I need to be patient in the days of difficulty because I don't know what God is doing in us. And the second response, we should trust God. You're traveling through dense woods. You'll want somebody who knows the way. Our senses fail us. Even satnav can keep us going round and round in circles. We think we're going in the right direction, but we're not many times. We need somebody who thinks clearly, knows the way. And the only way we can navigate the dangers of this life is to have God as our guide. We must trust His Word, our map for living. And maybe what He tells us to our brain is sounding counterintuitive. But He knows the way. We don't. And so we come to the final thought, which is an inspirational thought where we are looking to hope here. Apparently, it's a powerful experience. I can't speak from personal experience. I've never had it. But to get a cataract removed or laser eye surgery treatment, and you can walk into the office or the building, whatever, and your life, in terms of what you're seeing, is out of focus. But you can walk out, well, within some days anyway, and you can see with new clarity. I know that's how it worked for my mum, because she got her cataracts removed. Then she's sitting in the car beside me, and she's reading those road signs away in the distance that my glasses can't even focus on, and she's rhyming them off. Paul says this kind of experience is coming in our spiritual lives. Our sight, it's hampered now, it's hindered today. But when perfection comes, the imperfection disappears. And so in verse 11 and 12 of 1 Corinthians 13, we read, When I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. 12, for now we seem through a glass, darkly, but then, face to face, now I know in part, but then shall I know, even as also I am known. Now, the caution is perfection will not come until we reach heaven. But in heaven, it'll be like someone has turned the light on in a darkened room, and we'll see, and we'll say, aha, understanding will draw on and drop upon us, and God will be more awesome. Questions will be answered. The beautiful will be more clearly defined and even more stunning than we ever imagined. People will be more precious and all sense of competition will be gone. But by far, the greatest blessing of that future day will be the fact that we will truly know the Lord. The barriers will be gone. For the first time in our lives, we'll understand holiness, we'll understand sin and mercy, and most of all, we'll understand love, we'll experience God's love and its overwhelming warmth. We'll know what it feels like to be truly secure, fully known, 
completely understood and wonderfully loved. And we don't have that now, but we will have it then. Paul says currently now we're like children. Our perspective is limited. Our arguments are petty. We tend to see the world revolving around us. But there's coming a day when we'll grow up. We'll understand. We'll rejoice. Corinth was known for producing some of the finest bronze mirrors back in the years of antiquity. The Corinthian mirror was made of polished metal. But at best, it only gave an imperfect reflection. Paul says this life is like looking into that polished metal. We see images, but they're distorted. But those distorted images, they're going to be replaced by clarity. The clarity that is seeing something face to face. And that's the expression that he uses here. Face to face, complete, unhindered, unobstructed, not distorted in the slightest, fellowship with God. First John 3 and 2 tells us that when we get to heaven, we shall see him as he is. No more barriers to our understanding or relationship with him. And in a passage back in Numbers 12 and 8, where the Lord says of Moses, I speak with him face to face. Well, the figure here is a figure of speech, this face to face. It tells of great and unhindered intimacy. Moses' face was not literally beholding the literal face of God, for God is a spirit, but he did enjoy direct and he enjoyed intimate and he enjoyed great conversation with our Lord. But this face to face that Paul is talking about here is the real face to face. Do you know what we couldn't cope? We couldn't cope with this greater knowledge, this side of eternity. Spurgeon said, if we knew more of our own sinfulness, we might be driven to despair. If we knew more of God's glory, we might die of terror. If we had more understanding, unless we had equivalent capacity to use it, we might be filled with conceit and tormented with ambition. But up there, we shall have our minds and our systems strengthened to receive more without the damage that would come to us here from overleaping the boundaries of order, supremely appointed and divinely regulated. And so we sing, only faintly, now I see him, with the darkling veil between, but a blessed day is coming. When his glory shall be seen face to face. Oh, blissful moment, face to face, to see and know, face to face with my Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who loves me so. Sometimes you'll get a picture sent by your privileged friends who were out on the beaches of the Seychelles are up in the mountains of Switzerland, and they're beautiful pictures. But they're only 2D representations of the real thing. The real thing 
passes anything that even the most skilled photographer can capture. And you're taking it and you're on holiday and you're thinking, this doesn't do justice to what I'm looking at. If only I could get the true representation of what this is. Our understanding of life is that kind of picture. The Lord has for us something far greater. Heaven is precious for so many reasons. We long, of course, to be with loved ones who have gone on before us, and we miss them so dearly. We long to be with those great men and women of God, Hebrews 11 kind of characters, who have passed before us centuries ago. We want to walk streets of gold, see pearly gates, notice the angels around the throne of God, worshiping day and night, but none of those things, precious though they are, really make heaven heaven. What makes heaven really heaven is the unhindered, unrestricted presence of the Lord. And to know on that day, just as also I am known. Once again, come in Mr. Spurgeon, what do you say? He says the streets of gold will have small attraction to us. The harps of angels will but slightly enchant us compared with the king in the midst of the throne. He it is who shall rivet our gaze, absorb our thoughts, enchain our affection, and move all our sacred passions to their highest pitch of celestial ardor. We shall see Jesus. Now, in conclusion today, we pull it all together. Those in Corinth are fighting over who was the most significant, who could show the best gifts. Their focus was in the wrong place. It's not about the ranking of gifts. It's about using whatever gifts God gives us for God's purpose to enrich and build up the church. So what do we learn from that? We learn, first of all, time to put aside the pettiness of division. We as a people of God are to be different from the world. Instead of ranking each other, we should be encouraging each other. Put aside the pettiness of division. Grasp or need to be more diligent about love. If you and I can read down what we've done over the past number of weeks and look at Paul's words here and feel there's no lack of love in my life. I measure right up to the highest position he talks about, then we haven't been paying attention. Grasp or need to be more diligent about love. Look past the elementary and the purely concrete things to that which is spiritual, supernatural, and eternal. What do I mean by that? Looking past the elementary, concrete things to spiritual, supernatural, eternal things. What am I saying? Let me give examples. Instead of focusing and merely learning information about love, we should be striving, Lord, how can I demonstrate and practice it? Instead of claiming that I am spirit-filled, I should show that I am spirit-filled by the Christ-likeness of my character. Instead of arguing with somebody else about our viewpoint, We should share our viewpoint with a humble understanding that what we're all doing is seeing through a glass darkly. We should approach disagreement recognizing that we are both seeking truth and we're helping or trying to help each other to arrive at that truth. We should focus 
than what the Bible says. Rather than the formulas and the principles of men, such as we mentioned right at the beginning of the meeting today, we should refuse to despair when life becomes difficult and instead trust God that He has a plan and that plan is good, even though His purpose is right now obscured from our sight. We should recognize that the victories and the applause of this life must never become so important that they lead us to act in an unloving way towards each other. I am just going to stand over everybody in the way, walk all over them, so that I am the one that gets the most applause. You see, the trinkets of life are temporary. Love is eternal. And Paul reminds us here, in the final verse of the chapter, that faith and hope and love are the three things that will still be here. When everything else is said and done, and now abideth, 1 Corinthians 13 and 13, abideth faith, hope, charity, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. And because these are so important, faith, hope, and love, you would imagine that you would see them in the New Testament, and you do. They're emphasized again and again. You can check it out in 1 Thessalonians 1 and 3, in 1 Thessalonians 5 and 8, in Galatians 5, the verse 5 and 6, in Colossians 1, 4 and 5, in 1 Peter 1, 21 and 22. In all of those references, faith, Hope, love are all present, brought together. It's a recurring thing in the New Testament because all three are important. Faith, hope, and love. But why then does he say the greatest of these is charity? Because love will continue even grow in the eternal state. When you and I are in heaven, faith and hope will have run their course, fulfilled their purpose. We won't need faith when we see God face to face. We won't need to hope in the coming of Christ when He has come. But we will always love the Lord and each other and grow in that love through eternity. The greatest of these is charity. That's why because it keeps on and keeps growing. Why is love the greatest? Because love is an attribute of God, a characteristic of God. God is love, 1 John 4 and verse 8. Faith and hope are not part of God's character and personality. God doesn't have faith in the way that we have faith because He never has to trust outside of Himself. He does. He says it, and He accomplishes it. He doesn't have hope in the way that we have hope because he knows all things and is in complete control and doesn't have to sit on the sidelines trusting it's all going to work out in the end because he knows it is going to because he's in charge. But in terms of his attributes, God is love and he will always be that. The greatest of these is love. In the church, Love is the characteristic that will most greatly impact others. We have spent weeks talking about it. Since it's the one that has the greatest impact, we need to put our talk into daily practice. The greatest of these is love. 
Let's bow together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we call upon thy name today. We've sung a chorus sometimes during the series to be like Jesus. All I ask is to be like him. All through life's journey from earth to glory, all I ask is to be like him. And that's what we're asking today, to be like Christ, to reflect him more, to show his love to others more than we do, to live out what 1 Corinthians 13 would want to bring in to our mind and our heart. Help us to do it. May we be benefited. May the church of Christ on earth be benefited. And we'll remember, we'll remember some of these things when we reach glory. And we shall see him face to face and tell the story, saved by grace. In thy name and to thy glory we pray today. Amen.